Hello, and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more, and also panels, multi-guest episodes, which is something we like very much on the show. On this one here, we have a special one. We have both authors of this fine book behind their screens. They join me today. We have Emily Weinstein and Carrie James. Emily and Carrie, welcome to the show. Armin, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I'm glad to have you both on. For informational purposes, Emily Weinstein, Emily right there, is a research director at Project Zero at Harvard and a lecturer at the Graduate School of Education. Carrie, on the right there, which it should be on the right on the video, is a sociologist and principal investigator at Project Zero at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and also author of, I think, 2014 book, Disconnected. This is wonderful. Now, the first thing I wanted to check in on before we get into the book material is how do you two meet? Because collaborative efforts are a big deal, and when people partner, it's a game changer. Uh, Emily, how did you two meet? Carrie and I met at, at Harvard at Project Zero um, a little over a decade ago, and we started working together on a couple of different projects. And oh, it's just, I think we both feel like it's just been the absolute greatest to get to do this work together. We, we say that sometimes, um, we say often that when you have a good partner in something, it's like the joys are doubled and the worries or the anxieties and stresses are at least cut in half, if not smaller. Um, and I think we've just found that on every project. I'm a psychologist by training, Carrie's a sociologist. So we have this interesting ability to sort of balance micro and macro in our, when we work together and we, we just love writing together and thinking together. And so it's been one project after another, and we just uh, we just actually signed a contract for our next book together. So <laughs> at least one more one more to go. Carrie, what didn't I say that I should have? Oh, I think I think you covered most of the bases. I'll just say I'll just add to the add oomph to what she said about the joys being doubled and the burdens halved. It's just it's great to work uh, together, and you know, highlighting that Emily and I are. We have different disciplinary backgrounds with her deeper training in psychology and mind and sociology. And so that's been magical. And we just have a wonderful working relationship and co-authorship relationship. That's cool. Now, also, can one of you tell us about Project Zero and why it exists? Sure, absolutely. So I can I can share a little bit about Project Zero. So it's it's a longstanding research center at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, it was founded in 1967 by a philosopher named Nelson Goodman, and then uh, two pretty well known figures, Howard Gardner, who's well known for multiple intelligences, and David Perkins took the helm. They were there from the very beginning when they were grad students. It was founded, um, but really the name Project Zero people often ask us about. Um, it's really about the power of leaning into topics and areas where there's zero or very little widespread general communicable understanding of a given topic. And so at the beginning, Project Zero was actually founded uh, to examine and uh, create knowledge about learning in the arts. But, you know, and that work continues, but a variety of different topics are explored by Project Zero investigators. And always with a tradition of leaning into topics that are cutting edge where there's zero or little understanding and we want to make headway and share ideas with the world. Which in our case is a perfect context for doing research about teens and screens. We're definitely not in zero anymore, but um, you know, when we started doing this work, it was just like early days of Snapchat and there was no TikTok. And so the landscape has evolved really quickly, but the um, for us, I think being in an organizational culture where 
even if there isn't a big literature review you can do, um, people see the value. If it's something that impacts learning or development in any way, kids' lives and um, their well-being, there is just a spirit that that is worth studying. And so that I think has been really important for our work. One interesting thing I take note of is that a lot of both of your study and research is before all these took over the last few years has really pushed TikTok or any of these social media services, but you're already looking at those things before this was the average morning for a, let's say 14 year old or yeah. such. And then you get to see it expand and you're already there. Sometimes it's good to be set up before something is already taking off versus catching it when it's already going, because now you're the person representing that behind their screens. A lot of people are on their screens. It's almost a battle constantly right now to not be on the screen versus to be on the screen and the youth are more affected. Can you speak on the pull that is happening on, let's say, younger people, a 15-year-old right now, to be on their screen versus not be on it? For sure. Um, before, we, before we jump to the poll, we'll just say quickly, so we've been doing this research on teens and screens for over a decade. Um, this book that you held up behind their screens is really the product of this really amazing opportunity we had to collect insights from more than 3,500 teenagers about how they navigate the digital world and what they most wish adults understood. So we had so much fun writing this book and really focusing on breaking down what's myth, what's reality, and how to better understand the, the experience of today's teens and have better conversations with them as a result. Um, when it comes to the pull of the screen, adults might assume that teens want to be on their screens all the time or don't care about balance. But teens told us really clearly that they do not want to feel dysregulated or like they can't control their habits. They say things like, the app TikTok runs my life, or I just can't seem to get off of social media. Carrie, do you want to talk a little bit about the design features and how they intersect with development? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, a key factor um, in all of this in the pull to the screen is the design features. I mean, so there's a reason why social media companies create features like infinite scrolls. So we never reach the end of our newsfeed and notifications that actively act actually activate a neural response and a curious impulse to, to look and see like, who's reaching out to me? What are they saying? And so um, really, we're all vulnerable to these designs, but actually adolescents are even more so. And we often say that social technologies play and even prey on adolescents' developmental sensitivities. Developmentally, adolescents want to express themselves. They want to connect with peers. They're primed to seek feedback and validation from peers. So the polls are strong for all of us. We actually say in our book, hard for everyone, but they're even harder for teens. That pull is really strong and recognizing where development and design features collide is really essential. Mm -hmm. One thing I took note of heavily in the book and from what you guys just said is that you take into account the voice of teens and include them in your research, which is not something that is as common. Usually it's, this is what we figured out for you, but now you, you have done the thing where it's with you and it's for you as well. Where does that impetus come from? And is it a good way to bridge the gap between the younger people and those who didn't grow up with these and may have developed completely uh, without having this dopamine attack for years? 
Yeah. Um, well, Carrie and I are both trained in qualitative methods. We use other methods also in our work, but we both love qualitative research. And this book is kind of cool because the data are qualitative, but there there were so many participants that we also started to be able to really capture some of the key overlaps and sources of variation across teens. Um, what was really unique about this particular project for us is that we had teens working side by side with us every step of the way. Um, we had we did a big initial survey of teens, and then we actually had a teen advisory board, and we had teens co-interpreting the data with us every step of the way, helping us figure out how to make sense of the stories we were hearing and the trends we were seeing, um, and really flagging for us what was most important for adults to understand and what was going on in these stories we were hearing. So we have this list in the book, for example, of nine reasons why teens sexed, even when they know the risks. And that was a list that we started compiling based on existing literature and the stories we were hearing from teens. And then we just vetted again and again with teens to make sure that the list was, you know, crossing off things that weren't worded quite, quite, right and adding things that they feel like they felt like we missed um just one example but i think at every step of the way they just leveled up our thinking and having teens really like at the table with us and as our partners completely transformed the way we thought about our data and the stories that we ultimately um the stories we ultimately wanted to tell one thing that comes to mind you had brought up in the book that even if a teen is on their phone and let's say a parent is on their phone, it's important for the teen that the parent is not on their phone because it's like a representation of uh, attention and caring versus them. It's more of like out of their hands. Can you speak on that dynamic between a teen and their parent, both using social media or whatever, but how it's different for each of them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oftentimes adults make the assumption that teens wanna be on their screens 24 seven. And actually when we really listen closely and carefully to teens, we really tuned into the fact that that's not always the case. Teens really struggle with their digital habits. They say things like the app TikTok runs my life, or I wish I could get off social media, but I feel glued to it all the time. So that's a, that's one really important insight and sort of like the busting of a myth that teens just want to be on their phones all the time. And it actually connects to a thing, the thing, a thing that you're, you're getting at in your question is they notice that adults will tell them, can't you just get off their phone and then turn right back to their own devices to check their email. And so we really um, came to understand better that teens are worried themselves that they experience those pain points around the pull to the screen, but they also pay close attention to what adults are doing. And when their modeling is cutting against the messages that they're sharing, they take note. And so we really, when Emily and I are talking about key takeaways for adults from the book, and we name many of them in the book, one of the ones we often talk about is modeling over magic, that, that there's no magic wand that can wave away the impact of all of the behaviors we model day in and day out. And so it's really important for adults to be very alert to their own habits and the messages they're conveying when they're, they turn back to their phones after telling their teens to get off theirs. There's a, um, there's a growing literature around this topic of what's called technoference, which is this idea of technology disrupting the quality of our connections with each other. And technoference can be relevant to our relationships with our peers, um, to our relationships with our colleagues, and for sure, to our relationships with our kids. And increasingly, we're seeing evidence that this really does take a toll on kids, on the quality of 
their their feelings of connection with their parents, their feelings of you know their warmth that their parent and fo- their parents' interest and focus on them. Um, and one of the things that was just such a clear punchline for us was that teens really want our focused attention, even when they're struggling to give it to us in return. And that we can mistake the fact that they are on their phones for the fact that they don't care about connecting. But so often, again and again, in all different contexts, we heard that there is this like habitual instinct to reach for the phone that almost misleads the people around them because um, they actually do want to connect. There's just this kind of instinct, or in some cases, we talk about the digital pacifier concept, this idea um, in a social setting of using your phone like a a pacifier, like a self-soothing tool when you feel anxious. Um, And teens told us about being at a party and all they want is to talk to someone and not feel like a loser, not feel awkward and on the fringe. And instead, when they're struggling to start those conversations, they reach for their phone so that they can look preoccupied and look busy and look like they're distracted rather than just alone. The problem is that, of course, this backfires because it's really hard to approach. It's harder to approach someone when their eyes are on their phone and they look like they're not paying attention to you. So um, that's there are just so many ways that we saw at, you know, Carrie shared those quotes that I shared earlier, because I think like they just made such an impression on us that we saw that what teens say about their habits are not always aligned with what we think we see when we look on at, at their their eyes glued to the screen. This is true. One thing that comes to mind here is, did you notice or have you noticed a percentage, let's say 70, 30 or something where uh, this percentage of teens is being commanded by the force of the screen and the apps versus a group that is able to outweigh that and have control of their day? And what makes this group able to do that? How would you separate those two? We've been really interested in those differences. Why the reality is, you know, a thesis of our book is like teens are not monolithic. They are not. They're having such varied experiences with their devices and with their phones. And um, we think that those differences are really important. And over the last year, we, we've actually been working with uh, on a new project, trying to understand the strategies that teens who are really savvy and actually feeling very regulated around their phones, like what are they doing? around their devices and around their habits, it's actually leading to that. We're pretty careful about not saying it's this percent or that percent, just because we don't feel like the data are appropriate for making those kinds of prevalence statements. But absolutely, it's the case that we see important sources of variation. And it does seem like for many teens, it gets easier as they get older. They just, they have more practice. And frankly, like that makes sense. Their self-regulation capacities are more developed. And I think, frankly, like some of the social pressures are especially intense in the late middle school, early high school years. Um, But that's not to say that it's like everyone's got this figured out by the time they go to college at all. And in some ways, it seems like the transition into college, like activates another spike in sensitivity around a lot of this. Carrie? Well, there's another um, there's another part of this. There's a relevant metaphor in. in the science, in various sciences um, that has been used to capture a really important idea in this work, which is the idea of differential susceptibility. So that's the idea that we are all differently susceptible to the various pulls and risks of social media. And the helpful metaphor um, for talking about and thinking about teens, you know, when we talk to parents about teens in your life, is orchids and dandelions. 
Um, and so the metaphor is that dandelions are relatively hardy flowers and they can weather an array of conditions. So if you think about what a dandelion, um, what that might mean for a dandelion teen on social media is they, they might see a variety of things that look like highlight reels that can lead them into toxic social comparison, but it just sort of rolls off their back. They have a core sense of uh, self-confidence in who they are, or they, they're just not bothered by these external stimuli. Orchids, by contrast, are much more sensitive to a variety of different conditions. Um, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent of two children, and I know that kids are different from one another. Um, and, you know, one is more, one of my kids is one more, is more dandelion-like, and the other is more orchid-like. And it's really relevant to how we think about the risks of social media. That's why we often talk about, you know, people will often ask us, like, you know, what's an appropriate screen time limit? For teens. Well, teens are really different. And the idea of just, you know, coming up with a blanket amount of time that a teen can spend on a screen really doesn't capture differences both in what teens are doing on their screens and how they're feeling as a result of it. So we really take on board this idea of differential susceptibility and really want to be alert to the differences across teens. And always asking the question, like we, we think of social media as an amplifier. So what is it amplifying for an individual kid? I like that one. I wrote actually about that in my notes, the dandelions and orchids. And I very immediately associated with the dandelion because I found myself to be able to be resilient to any sort of social media impact. But then I feel like if I passed some advice of my own onto the general public, many would have differential susceptibility as you're describing. And so I wouldn't translate with those who are more in the orchid category because they wouldn't have that same built-in, let's say resilience. That's a big deal for advice or being able to help somebody. I like that you brought that up. Yeah. How'd you come up with that, by the way? We did not come up with that. That is a powerful idea existing across the sciences and it's used in the, in the media effects literature and, um, we are drawing on a lot of existing scholarship. That's just an idea that that we found helped us put so many of the things we were hearing in context. And worth saying too that you know it draws this idea that we're orchids or dandelions. But the reality is that even someone who's a dandelion has orchid-like moments and has things that they can feel really sensitive about and their development can itself be kind of like an orchid moment for people. So there are things that happen developmentally during adolescence. Like maybe you as a 13 year old were more sensitive than you are now as an adult to certain things. That would be 100%. very understandable. <laughs> um, and so even recognizing that even if you're, we have a pretty um, dandelion-esque kid on our hands that it's completely reasonable and appropriate that there might be big moments of sensitivity that they encounter too. That's a great point. Long live 13 year old self and true. That's a very good point that you're taking account of the change. I, I think that, that you're a rare individual who said long live 13 year old self. <laughs> yeah, most and of us I feel love that. Like, <laughs> most of us I think are like, thank goodness I'm not my 13 year old self anymore. But I love that's, it. That's, I love that you feel that way. Right. Yeah. And entertaining side note for listeners. When I was around that time period, I would go out with people with one of my friends and say, who's more weird? And we try to see, we'd out, try to outcompete one another, but also sensitivity in some form at that time, which now is not the case. That's a great point. You, would, you wouldn't know that because you look at someone later. One point to add on to that, 
should advice for dandelions come from dandelions and advice for orchids come from orchids? Is that the best way to go? Thoughts on that? What an interesting question. Uh, you know, I think that one of the things we heard so clearly from teens as we were doing this work was that just talking to each other, to their peers made such a big difference. And hearing from people who had similar experiences and people who had different experiences was actually powerful for teens in different ways. Um, we had, so I told you, we had this advisor, teen advisory council that worked with us and we asked them, you know, we worked together over several months and they were really close to the data. And so they were engaging with a lot of other teen stories and sharing stories with each other. And um, we asked them at the end of the advisory council about what they were taking away from the experience. We used this prompt that we often use at Project Zero called, I used to think, now I think. So the idea is what is something that you thought before you had this experience or this learning and, and what is something you think now? And sometimes we use it to talk about a change, but you could also do, I used to think, now I really think, if you have a stronger feeling about something. Um, and Carrie and I love that exercise. And we asked the teens, like, what was your used to think now, I think. And such an important theme across their responses was like, I used to think I was alone in my struggles around social media. And now I see that there are so many people who have the same experiences and struggles and feelings. And we're just not always talking about it because people aren't talking about it at the same time. They also called out the fact that they were so struck by the differences that teens had based on different aspects of their identities and their contexts and their communities. And um, so being able to appreciate that there are these like really familiar core struggles that teens are having feels so good to feel validated and seen in that way. And yet we can do that and also recognize that that teens experiences really vary, just like all of our experiences vary. We've continued in our work to lean into this idea that often the most helpful help for teens comes from other teens, not from adults. And so uh, one of the through lines of our work around teen well-being is leaning into that principle. And um, we're now building a set with teens, a set of resources and strategies for digital well-being, because we know the power of created by teens for teens, advice, wisdom, and resources. And so we're excited to continue this trajectory of our work. But getting the tips in a vacuum is only takes you so far. Like we, we initially were like, let's just figure out all the best. Let's compile a list of all the best strategies teens told us help their well-being and we'll just share it out. But what we actually found as we started working with teens and trying to do that is that what's really helpful is hearing from other people about how those strategies fit into their life and how they came to them. And so maybe a strategy like um, going through your feed and muting all the people who make you feel bad, <laughs> like muting and or unfollowing accounts that you notice are sparking like really toxic comparison for you. That's a really powerful strategy for some people. Um, but just reading about it on a piece of paper doesn't seem to do the trick for teens. Like it's, there's something really magical about having someone really talk to you about that and tell you about that strategy and why it works for them and how they use it. Two big concepts that come to mind as you're describing is it's practical because it's actually into the day to day and it has a high level of empathy. Empathy is a big item I am seeing here across the theme and I'm sure in the parenting that occurs, which is great. Long live that connection when empathy is there. Suddenly there's no gap. I think empathy removes the gap. Uh, for our last point here, can you both speak on 
how important empathy is to reduce uh, social distance between different groups. Yeah, I'll just jump in and say, I mean, one of the, the best compliments we've gotten so far about our book is from a, one of our colleagues who's an expert on empathy. And she read the book and said, like, this book is an incredibly powerful intervention for empathy. Like it really, and, and we're so pleased that that's, you know, that's the impact that it appears to be having for some reason readers, because our goal was really to create that sense of empathy, to tell teen stories, to share with, share the insights and the pain points that adults most needed to understand. And so we think that, you know, there's tremendous power in hearing, hearing the stories of, of young people, by young people, and tuning into some of those particulars as a way, as a first step to giving advice. I think that, you know, we, at the end of the book, we talked about different keys for conversations um, between adults and teens. And one of them is asking over assuming, and that's really just trying to suspend um, that knee jerk that often adults have to assume that we know or understand what's going on, assume that we know what's happening when a teen feels glued to their screen, really bracket that and ask what's going on, lean into curiosity. But then once we hear the details and the story, lean into empathy, over rolling our eyes, trying to bracket uh, that uh, temptation to roll our eyes because, and try to remember that we were once adolescents once. We were once really mired in those social dynamics and interactions where peer feedback was really important. And we really needed to understand how our friends and peer, we needed to be connected to them and really understand what they thought of who we were and what we were doing. So that's a big thrust of what we've tried to advise parents and adults around. So much of um, when it comes to teens and technology, so much of what kids are navigating feels new and different. And often we hear from adults that even though they may have the best intentions around connecting, that they can get tripped up by the fact that they're like, I don't really, what is, what is a TikTok? What is that? <laughs> like, what does it mean to have a Snapchat streak? And why does it mean that my kid can't just put down their phone at, for a week and go on vacation? And um, we found that so often it feels that the newness of this can feel like a barrier to connecting and to understanding. And it almost like deactivates our empathetic reaction. And one of the things that we saw so clearly is that so much of what teens experiences are is actually rooted in feelings that are completely familiar and that you can absolutely connect to from your own adolescence. So we talk about this idea that like, yeah, maybe you never had to deal with like watching your follower count or your, you know, the ratio of your like likes to in what, like how many likes you got in the first minute after you posted and stressing about what that might mean. Like you might not have had that experience, but probably you can remember the dynamics of your middle school lunchroom. Probably you can remember what it felt like when you had your first heartbreak or when you found out you got left out of a social event that you really wanted to be included in. And those feelings, when we can tap them, when we can recognize that even though there are new forms, the feelings underlying them are similar, it shifts the entire way we, re we respond to teens. Because instead of saying snap streaks seem so dumb, or why do you care about, why do you care about Venmo, what you're seeing on Venmo, we say things instead like, oh my gosh, like I remember 
how hard it felt to feel left out. Or I remember like waiting by my phone for that phone call. And so I know, I know that feeling. And then we can just access a whole different tone and tenor to our conversations. This is a great point. Then instead of the gap of like, oh, that's a different thing. So it's unrelatable. Yeah. But underneath it was the feeling, which has continued, <laughs> continued for decades in a way. You just remember that. And then there's no longer a gap. Finding ways that the gap, because we're still human at the end. Finding differences is, is easy in the, the things that happen, but the feeling behind it is similar. On this one here, I would like to thank both of you for having joined on the episode, describing a bit from your wonderful look behind their screens and giving us a sense of the connection that um, teams can have to one another and reducing the gap with the older generation. Thank you so much for Thank having so us. Thank you so much for having us. Wonderful. And we are out.